The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your host, Elliot the Historian. Today, we are going back to ancient Greece. I'm going to discuss Greece in the 5th century BC with an eye towards the causes of the Peloponnesian War, a war that dominated the last third of the century. There's a lot to set up here, but undoubtedly the best place to start is to explain what Greece actually was in the 6th and 5th centuries BC. We tend to think in terms of modern nations, and even when we look back through history, we think of unified kingdoms or empires. Greece was not unified in any way. Instead, the way to look at it is that the people in the area of modern Greece shared certain cultures and language, and populations were concentrated around city-states. The best way to think of a city-state is to look at it as a powerful city such as Athens, Sparta, Thebes, or Corinth, and the villages and farmlands that were often incorporated into the governmental structures of these various individual city-states. I said that language and culture was shared, but still, each city had its own identity, and in fact, ancient Greek language itself was subdivided into two higher-level dialects, Doric and Ionic. There are further subdivisions, and Macedonian is considered another dialect altogether. But to keep it simple for the purpose of this episode, we're going to focus on Doric and Ionic. These two cultures, Doric and Ionic, stemmed from settlers, or invaders depending on who you ask, that poured into Greece over half a millennium earlier replacing the cultures that had previously dominated Greece, which were mainly the cultures such as the Mycenaeans that we read about in the Homeric poems, such as the Iliad or the Odyssey. The Doric-speaking folk tended to settle more in western and southern Greece, and the Ionic peoples tended towards eastern Greece, including the western coast of what is modern-day Turkey, which became known as the Ionian coast because of the preponderance of Ionic-dominant cities. Let's zoom in on a couple cities that you've probably heard of, the city of Sparta and the city of Athens, and take a look at some of their differences. Sparta was a Doric city centered in Peloponnesus, a peninsula in southern Greece. Sparta had citizens who were highly militaristic and would train for fighting from a very early age. Sparta also had a large slave population called Helots, and it's likely that the emphasis on military training for the citizens was to help keep the slave population in check. There was also a non-citizen but non-slave class called the Perioikoi. The Spartans had two kings, the senior Agiad dynasty and the junior Eurypontid dynasty. On the one hand, the kings didn't have a lot of power. Power was generally concentrated into the Gerasia, a council of elders, and the ephors, an elected group of five men. On the other hand, kings would often serve as military leaders when necessary, and a smart, successful, and popular king could often lead Sparta itself to more successful outcomes. The city of Sparta, and I say that with loose air quotes, was actually four smaller cities that had incorporated. Spartan citizens were militaristic, but Sparta was often reluctant to venture too far from Sparta on military campaign, partially for religious and food harvest reasons, and partly because when the main Spartan military was far away from the Spartan territory, there was a higher risk of the Helot slave population starting a rebellion. Spartans were generally terse of speech. In fact, the word laconic, which means 
using few words, comes from the Spartans, as they were also known as the Lacedaemonians. The Greek father of Western history, Herodotus, has a wonderful passage about the Spartans, which, while probably not entirely true, is still funny enough to relate, and conveys the laconic nature of the Spartans. It's about a cultural group known as the Samnians approaching the Spartan council for help with food, as they'd been starving. When the banished Samnians reached Sparta, they had audience of the magistrates, before whom they had made a long speech, as was natural with persons greatly in want of aid. When it was over, the Spartans averred that they could no longer remember the first half of their speech, and thus could make nothing of the remainder. Afterwards, the Samnians had another audience, where, while holding a bag they had brought with them, said, The bag wants flour. The Spartans answered that they did not need to have said the bag. However, they resolved to give them aid. Now the passage is funny, but it also is subtly painting an inaccurate picture of the Spartans. The passage suggests that Spartans were short of speech because they were stupid. But the Spartans proved over and over to be very intelligent, very apt, and not the conservative country bumpkins that ancient and even modern historians have tended to make them out to be. Let's look at Athens now. Athens was a city of Ionic descent. It lie on the peninsula of Attica, which would have been northeast of Sparta. In the early 6th century BC, the lawmaker Solon instituted democratic principles in the Athenian government. He's often given credit for bringing democracy to Athens, but his reforms still stopped well short of giving full democratic powers to all male citizens. After going back to a period of rule by despot in the mid-6th century, a man named Pesistratos and his son, Athens went full democracy in the late 6th century due to reforms by a man named Cleisthenes. His reforms were revolutionary and created a true democracy, splitting the city up into sort of electoral groups that had randomized members, which would have the effect of breaking up a single district having too much power. By the mid-5th century, Athenians would vote on pretty much anything, including whether to go to war. The idea of this kind of democracy also sounds great until you see that, just like now, democracy was often hijacked by demagogues, who would sway the crowd in their favor by saying what the crowd wanted to hear, instead of what was good for the state. The voting populace was also fickle. Take the Middleanian debate of 427 BC. One day, the voting populace voted to send ships out to kill all the male citizens of the rebelling city of Mytilene and sell the women and children into slavery. The next day, they changed their minds and voted to send another ship to stop the first ship. The second ship managed to stop the massacre from happening, but the point here is that pure unchecked democracy was dangerous. It's interesting that moderns tend to look at 5th century BC Athens as enlightened. It's not really surprising, given the amount of Western culture that came out of Athens in that century. Drama, philosophy, art, all took strides forward in Athens during the 5th century BC. And let's not forget that Athens instituted the first democracy in the world. But as I just noted, with pure democracy, the truth was not nearly as enlightened as we like to think. For one thing, you might have noticed earlier when I mentioned Athens' democracy that it was limited only to male citizens. In fact, Athenian women were tragically confined to the household, and the culture's view on women in general was misogynistic 
backwards, unequal, and disrespectful. In fact, the so-called conservative Spartans had a somewhat more favorable view towards women, as Spartan women often trained in the same athletic ways that Spartan men did. Granted, this was to ensure that Spartan women would give birth to strong Spartan children, which is a pretty misogynistic reason. But we're talking about degrees here, and considering that Athenian women almost never left the household, even for shopping as this was relegated to slaves, the Spartans have the moral high ground here. And in case you missed that, Athenians had slaves. Greeks in general had slaves, but I'm picking on the Athenians here because of their democracy and because of how Athens is often portrayed as the good guys. And they had a lot of slaves, down to even children. While it's true that some slaves eventually would be able to work off or buy their own freedom, and sometimes even become successful in their own right, that still wasn't nearly as common as slavery for life, or even multiple lives, as slaves would give birth to children who would themselves become slaves. It was horrible, tragic, and I want to emphasize this because Athens is too often sugarcoated in modern culture. On top of all this, even with the pure democracy among all male citizens, the upper class, the Kalai Kagathoi, or good and the beautiful, still looked down upon the lower classes, the hoi polloi, or the many. So these were the two most prominent cities of 5th century Greece. But there were still other powerful cities that had an important effect on the geopolitical situation. Corinth lie between Athens and Sparta, and would play an important part in, I guess I should say, the Greco-political situation. The cities of Megara, of Argos, of Thebes, all great cities in their own right, and the Macedonians to the north. We're still not sure what the original Macedonian language was. There's evidence that it was different enough from the Greek that Macedonians could speak Macedonian without being understood by Greeks. But we do know that the Macedonians participated generally in the greater Greek world, both in trade and alliances. While not a strict rule, Ionians tended to have friendlier relations with Ionians, and Dorians tended to have friendlier relations with Dorians. Part of the reason was the obvious cultural and linguistic similarities, but part of the reason was the fact that various Greek cities would often send off colonizers to create new city-states, who often saw the founding city as a sort of parent city. Sometimes these colonies would then found their own cities, so you'd have multiple generations of cities. I'll give you an example. The city-state of Corinth founded the island city-state of Corcyra. Corcyra went on to found Epidamnus. So Corcyra was a parent city of Epidamnus, with Corinth being the grandparent city. Now I want to really stress a point here. Greece was not a unified nation or kingdom. The city-states tended to squabble amongst each other and eye each other suspiciously, and would only ally with each other begrudgingly when there was a greater threat, such as the Persians, who we'll get to. The various city-states also had very different types of government. But all the city-states, at least nominally, proclaimed that every city-state had the right of autonomia and eleutheria, which translates to something like self-rule and liberty. To be clear, this is self-rule and liberty at the state level, not at the citizen level. Most Greek states still had slaves, citizens were often grouped by affluence, and many city-states were under oligarchic rule, rule by a wealthy aristocratic class. 
but the idea was still that the city-states could run by their own rule. With that, it's time to start getting chronological. By the end of the 6th century BC and beginning of the 5th century BC, it was clear that autonomia and eleutheria of the city-states was facing a serious challenge. That challenge came from the east, from the Persians. In the mid-6th century, a Persian leader named Cyrus the Great formed an empire through military conquest. By the end of the 6th century, that empire bumped up against the Greeks and had started incorporating some of the easternmost Greek city-states into its empire as a sort of vassal state. The aforementioned Ionian coast is an example of a group of city-states that were put under Persian satraps, who functioned sort of like a duke or sub-ruler. In the 490s, the Ionian coast rebelled against the Persians and appealed to other Greek city-states for help. Not every Greek city-state offered help, but Athens did as a show of solidarity for their Ionian cousins, and also probably with more than a little fear, that if the Persians were willing to take the Ionian coast, they'd eventually be willing to go further into Greece. It's impossible to say what would have happened if the Athenians didn't help the Ionian coast, but they did, and because of that, the Persian rulers had a reason to attack the Athenians as punishment for helping the Ionian revolt, which, I should say, failed. After an initial disastrous attempt to invade Greece, the Persians launched a second invasion deeper into Greece with the intention of hitting Athens in 490 BC. Athens was now appealing to other city-states, including Sparta, for help, but received little help other than soldiers from the city of Plataea, which was somewhat close to Athens, but still far enough to be its own city. Despite being outnumbered, and we'll never know just exactly how outnumbered, the Athenians won a stunning victory against the Persians at the Battle of Marathon, 490 BC. This didn't permanently stop the Persians, but it did have some major impacts. The battle was looked at as an example of Athenian excellence. The men who fought at Marathon, the Marathonomikoi, were looked at as practical superheroes in Athenian culture. The battle gave the Athenians themselves incredible confidence, not only in themselves as individuals, but in their city and in their unique democratic system, which at this point was still very new, barely 15 years old. And while it didn't stop the Persian Wars, it did delay the Persians from another immediate invasion and gave the Athenians and the Greeks time to prepare. Marathon also put Athens on the map in the larger Greek context, a fact which would only grow over the 5th century from here on out. Ten years later, in 480 BC, the second Persian invasion of Greece was underway, as the Persian king Xerxes continued what his predecessor Darius I started. It was during this invasion that the famous Battle of Thermopylae took place. It was this battle in which 300 Spartans, along with a couple thousand allied Greeks, held off thousands of Persians for several days at the Pass of Thermopylae. Remember that I mentioned that a smart and successful Spartan king could make a difference? The Spartan king Leonidas was one such king, as he and his 300 Spartan hoplite soldiers fought to the death while ordering the remaining soldiers to retreat, allowing the ones who did manage to escape to fight another day on other terms. While this was happening, a naval battle was happening somewhat close by between allied Greeks and Persians, with a prominent Athenian contingent. The allied Greek ships were trying to blockade the Persian ships at the Straits of Artemisium. 
The hope was that between this naval blockade and the Spartans holding the Persians off at Thermopylae, the Persian advance could be stopped. The Battle of Artemisium ended up as a stalemate, but the Greek allies realized there was no point in staying there once the news of the defeat at Thermopylae reached them. Many city-states, such as Plataea and even the great city of Athens, were evacuated and burned by the Persians. The Athenians and Greek allied navy were in ships, probably for a couple weeks. It's here that we get to the star of the show, Themistocles. Themistocles was an Athenian statesman and general, and an important leader in the allied navy. Themistocles used a messenger to suggest to the Persian king Xerxes that there was infighting among the Greek allied navy, and that the Athenians were willing to switch sides to the Persians. He also floated the idea that the Greeks were going to all split up and run, well, boat away. The Persian king took the bait and sent a fleet to stop the ostensibly evacuating fleet. We don't know exactly how unified the Greeks were before Themistocles' subterfuge, but when it was clear the Persian navy was on the way, the Greeks quickly became unified and prepared a strategy. When the Persians found no evacuating fleet, they were eventually lured to the Strait of Salamis, hoping to catch the Greeks where they had been holing up. What Themistocles had realized from the Battle of Artemisium was that the smaller and more maneuverable Greek ships did better in tight conditions than the larger Persian ships. Xerxes had set up a throne on a mountain overlooking Salamis, hoping to watch his Persian ships overtake the Greek fleet. Instead, he watched his fleet cut down, as the smaller and more maneuverable Greek ships literally sailed circles around the Persian ships. In fact, the Greeks had a word for this strategy, periplus, which literally translates to sailing around. This was devastating to the Persian navy, and when the allied Greeks defeated a Persian land force at the Battle of Plataea, the second and last Persian invasion of Greece was over. The threat of the Persians absorbing Greece was effectively over, but that did not mean the Persian Wars were over. There are several reasons for this, but the simplest is that the Greeks living in the 470s BC didn't know that there was never to be another invasion. Almost a decade had passed between the invasion of 490 and that of 481. And keep in mind, the Persian Empire was huge, as it stretched from modern-day Turkey to Egypt to Afghanistan. The Greeks had no idea exactly how powerful the Persian Empire was, or in this case, how much it had been weakened. Within about a year of his victorious and crucial battles against the Persians, Themistocles was no longer the voted-in leader of Athens. Now, this position was something like a strong advisor to the people or a statesman. The statesman would also often be a general in times of conflict. Much like Winston Churchill was pushed aside after the immediate threat of World War II was over, Themistocles was bumped to the sidelines and eventually ostracized, literally exiled by vote from the city of Athens. His successor was a popular man named Cimon. Cimon was the son of a man named Miltiades. If you listened to episode 8 of the Stream of Time titled Noble Prowess, you might remember Miltiades as the architect of the Athenian victory at the Battle of Marathon. Cimon had already proved himself a highly competent military leader at the Battle of Salamis. This, and the fact that his father was a hero, no doubt kept him at the front of Athenian politics for decades. Remember, 
The Greeks didn't know that there would never be another Persian invasion of Greece, and were still fearful. It makes sense that the Greeks still wanted to mount a strong defense, and perhaps even go on the offensive, and Cimon would be a major part of this. Athens, especially, would be a major part of this defense and counteroffensive. While several city-states had participated in the defense of Greece in the 490s and 480s, including Sparta, it was clear that Athens had been the shining star in the defense of Greece. Athens had a few things going for it at this point. For one, remember when I said Sparta was often reluctant to go too far on military campaign and often would refuse to campaign during religious or harvest periods? This ended up being a problem during key moments in the Persian invasions, and it was in fact these time-sensitive reasons that the Spartans didn't participate, at all, in the Battle of Marathon, which, as I mentioned earlier, was a stunning Athenian victory, with help from the Plataeans. Athens had proven itself militarily on land, at Marathon and Plataea, and on the sea, at Artemisium and Salamis. To be clear, the Athenian navy at this point was unmatched in the Aegean Sea, the sea which Greece sort of wraps around. More to the point, everyone knew the Athenian navy was par excellence. So with all this said, it's not entirely surprising that Athens took the lead in organizing a larger defense against the Persians. In 478, just two years after the Battle of Salamis, Athens formed an association of Greek city-states, many of them island states in the Aegean Sea, as a collective defense against the Persian threat. The idea was that city-states could offer up ships to contribute to the collective fleet, or if they couldn't offer ships, they could pay a monetary tribute. This was an option many of the smaller cities chose, and this tribute would go into a treasury that was held on the island city of Delos. For this reason, this association was called the Delian League. The Delian League wasn't the only nor was it the first such collection of city-states in Greece. Since the 6th century, Sparta had been at the head of the Peloponnesian League, a collection of city-states such as Corinth and Elis. But the Spartans weren't on the best terms with the Athenians by now, and the members of the Peloponnesian League were in less danger from the Persians. Sparta was also generally pretty easygoing as a hegemonic ruler of the League, and didn't require much of the member states. Tribute was only collected in times of war, for instance. I have no doubt that the Delian League started off with good intentions. Under Athenian leadership and Cimon as strategos, or general, the Delian League would prove to be a threat to the Persian holdings in Greece and Ionia, remember, western Turkey. In the mid-470s, under Cimon, the League retook the city of Aeon in northern Greece, he cleared out pirates at the island of Skyros. In 469 BC, the League won a decisive victory against the Persians at the Battle of the Euromedon, a battle that began as a naval river battle but ended up in fierce fighting on land. But just seven years after the formation of the Delian League, Athens made clear that leaving the League was not an option. In 471 BC, the island of Naxos tried to leave the League. Athens sieged the city overwhelmed it, tore down its walls, and removed the city's vote in the Delian League. The crushing victory at the Eurymedon two years later probably ironically didn't help Athenian popularity, since it was becoming clear at this point that the Persians were not a threat to the Greeks anymore. 
That doesn't mean the League wouldn't tussle with the Persians anymore. In the early and mid-450s, there was a disastrous expedition to Egypt to try to support an Egyptian revolt against the Persians. While the expedition started successfully, it eventually ended in a complete disaster for the Delian League, which of course made Athens look especially bad. And there would be more fighting around Cyprus in 450 BC that would eventually lead to Cimon's death, but would also effectively be the end of the Greco-Persian Wars. Technically, the Greco-Persian Wars end in 449 BC, but in 469 BC, it was starting to become clear that the Persians were not an actual threat to the Greeks, and this made some of the members of the Delian League restive. In 465, the island of Thassos tried to leave the League. The fact that they appealed to the Persians should tell you how some of the Greeks were looking at Athens by this point. Athenian troops sieged Thassos, and eventually Thassos met a similar fate to Naxos. Thucydides considered this the moment that the League became a hegemony, which is to say a confederation of states in which one state is in clear dominance over the others. But if there was still any question as to whether this was the case, that was eliminated in 455 BC when Athens moved the treasury of the Delian League to Athens. This is obviously more than a symbolic gesture, as having the money physically in Athens meant Athens could easily do whatever it wanted with it. So we typically say that in 455, the Delian League became the Athenian Empire. As the League is shifting, the political landscape of Athens is shifting with it, and it's in this context that we see the rise of another great name in Athenian history, the Athenian statesman and great orator Pericles. He rose in power in the 460s, and by 461, he had managed to get Cimon exiled, and his political partner Ephialtes had died under mysterious circumstances, making Pericles the strongest political figure in Athens until his death over 30 years later in 429. And with the entrance of Pericles, I'm going to end this episode on a bit of a cliffhanger. I've established the political landscape of Greece in the first half of the 5th century BC. By the way, you might have been wondering this whole time what the title of this episode, Pentakontiatia, means. The term literally translates to the period of 50 years, and usually refers to the time that starts about here, the reconstruction of Athens at 479 BC and the formation of the Delian League, and ends at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War in 431 BC. Our best source for this period and the Peloponnesian War was a participant of the Peloponnesian War, an exiled general named Thucydides. While Herodotus is often called the father of history, or at least Western history, Thucydides takes a far more critical eye towards history, specifically in relation to the war and its causes. Thucydides goes out of his way to understand the realpolitik that drove Greece into a long, desultory war, and why Athens ultimately lost. If Herodotus is the father of history, Thucydides is the father of political science. Granted, this episode didn't cover the full Pentacontiatia, but it's a fun word to say, and we've covered the beginning of the period so far. Join me next time as I discuss the second half of the Pentacontiatia, the lead-up to the Peloponnesian War, how the war played out, and the consequences of the war. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.